So let me just pray again. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are present here. We don't invite you into that because you are here. But we ask that we would have ears to hear. We would be aware of your presence within us and in this space. It would help us to live in such a way that we mirror Jesus the way you lived your life. Those that you had a heart for, Lord, may we develop more of a heart for. Those on the margins. Lord, in your day, it was the tax collectors, the prostitutes, others. And as we pray, we can no, in no doubt fill in the blanks of who uh, that would be in our day. So as we look at your word, Lord, I pray that you would give us that heart to live lives as if it was you living our life. And so, Lord, we pray these things in your name. Amen. So we have come to kind of the end of our time looking at our last vehicle. We've been talking about where are we going and how do we get there. And we've defined our, our where we're going as our metaphorical Seattle. Um, because apparently Seattle is the place to be. That's where we want to go. I remember I said San Diego and I think Jess was like, no, no, not San Diego. It's got to be cooler. I'm like, all right, let's go, let's go to Seattle. And so our Seattle, our vision, we've talked about as desiring the kingdom of God to become tangible. The places where we can touch the kingdom, feel the kingdom, experience the kingdom. This is our final leg of the trip, if you will. And next week, we're going to sit around and say, how, how do these vehicles, what do they look like? How do we embody them in our community with each other and ourselves and in the Lancaster community? And so think of it as, as we're going from here to Lanc from Lancaster to Seattle, and we've, we've gone in multiple vehicles. We've been in three vehicles. Okay? Think of that maybe as the, the car ride to the airport. The shuttle from the parking lot to the airport itself, and then the plane ride. And now think of this last vehicle as maybe the, the Uber to the Airbnb that you rented in Seattle, or, um, or the rental car that you decide, hey, I need a rental car, so I need to move around a little bit in Seattle. And so this is that leg. This is the final leg of the journey, the last vehicle. And so we've talked about the first vehicle, that of being family, how Jesus redefined for us what is family. And then the second vehicle we looked at was pursuing truth. We talked about that as kind of the air, airline part of the trip, that um, we need to make sure that we are following Jesus because all of the rest of what we're talking about rests on that fact of following after Jesus and being like him. 
And then last week, the third vehicle we looked at was honest expression. That being a place that we're, we're a safe place to seek after truth. That it's okay to wrestle. It's okay to doubt. It's okay to struggle with God. He, he's active in that per- pursuit. If you're pursuing after Jesus and you're wrestling with these questions, he's in it with you. And then today we're covering our fourth and final vehicle. And that is following Jesus into the margins. And so next week, we're going to have times, as I mentioned, of prayer and quietness and and reflection on Scripture. Time to dream about what these vehicles might look like lived out in in our reality to experience the kingdom become tangible. And so I'm kind of giving you a homework this week is to is to pray. So to ask God, okay, what's next? For us. Spend time listening to what the Holy Spirit would say and then obey what you send God saying to us as a community. I don't know about you, but a lot of times I may ask God, okay, God, what's next? And then I just get up and move versus, okay, God, what's next? And listen. And then not only listen, but obey. You know, because I can ask, I can, you know, here I'm going to throw Caden under the bus. You know, I can ask, hey, Caden, can you do X? And he could hear me, but not really listen. Caden, can you make your bed? Got it, Dad. I come home and the bed's not made. He, <laughs> yeah, right. That never happens. So I ask him, he heard me, but he didn't obey it. And so we need all three. Sorry, buddy. That's why you never want to be a preacher's kid, right? You always get thrown under the bus in the sermons. So we're talking about the last one, following Jesus in the margins. And so we're looking at Luke 4, 14 to 30. I know on those um, postcards. I have all different scriptures. And this happened last week, too. I was like, here's where we're going. And I was like praying and thinking, and, and God brought another scripture to my mind. And I'm like, okay, well, so that happened today, uh, this week again. So Luke 4, 14 to 30. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. 
I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. So what we see here at the beginning is he returns to Galilee. And actually, this is in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is right after his temptation in the wilderness, the 40 days in the wilderness. And so because he had... had um, had victory over the powers of the evil one. He returned to his homeland, his home area, in the power of the Spirit. Now, as part of that, he goes back to Galilee. So think of Galilee as like a region, and Nazareth is as part of the region, or, you know, if you want to say state, town. And so he returns to Galilee in the, par- in, in the power of the Holy Spirit. And he's there, and he goes to synagogues, And on one Sabbath, he returns to his homeland, the place where he grew up, the place where he went every Sabbath day for years, probably a good 30 years. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity as you grew up to go back to the church that you grew up in. And it's like, I remember you from when you were this little. You know, the same little old ladies who were there were little and old when you were there as a child are still there and they're still little and they're still old. And you go back and they certainly have frozen you in time. My guess is that was, oh, there's Jesus. Remember him? And so he comes back to the synagogue. Hometown boy returns because they had heard all the things that he was doing, all the miracles. And so no doubt he probably, they thought, he's going to do something here. Because how can you not come back to your own hometown, the place you grew up and spent time with and know the people, and you know the brokenness and the need of healing, you're going to do something, right? And so he goes to the Sabbath, goes to the synagogue on a Sabbath, and he's given the opportunity to read from the scroll. And so the scroll is handed to him, and we're not sure whether this was the reading of the day or this was his own choosing. And so he opens the scroll. He was handed Isaiah, and so he opens it to Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. But then he also quotes from Isaiah 58, verse 6. And that quoting of Isaiah 61 and 58 sums up. It's like, a, it's like his job description. What did Jesus come for? What was his purpose? What was his overall mission? If you were to take it all in, take it all from, from all of the Gospels, you could put it all under that heading of what he reads from Isaiah. 
The saying goes, begin as you're meant to complete it or meant to finish. So if you go down the rest of your life and you think, how do I want to be known for? How do I want to be remembered for? What are those things? Then you go back and you say, I want to start living that now. So start as you're meant to finish. And so Jesus begins his public ministry. This is the beginning of it. By saying, hey, here's what I'm about. I'm going to proclaim release to the poor, the captives, the oppressed. I'm going to proclaim the kingdom and the Lord's favor. That's what I'm going to be all about. And so he's, he's proclaiming this kingdom. This kingdom where the values of this world are flipped on its head. Along with the empires. He proclaims this upside down kingdom of God. Where the poor inherit the kingdom. Where the hungry are filled. And the rich and powerful are pulled down and brought low. He had come. For those on the margins, the poor, the needy, the oppressed, those in prison, those hungry. And so those at the synagogue that morning hear this and they are ecstatic. Because to them, that sounded like good news because they were self-identifying as that kind of person. We are the poor. We are the ones in prison. We are the oppressed. We are the ones who need to hear the favor of the Lord. Because here we're captives. Because we are under the thumb of the Roman Empire. And so they thought it was good news. And so did you hear what they first say about Jesus? That he prays on him. Isn't this Joseph's son? This is amazing. I love this teaching. This hometown boy done well. They knew his family. They had known him from little on up. And so what he was saying, they were buying. That's us. That's who we are. But he knew that they hadn't truly grasped what he was saying. That in their hearing, that good news would be proclaimed to the poor, freedom for the prisoner, sight to the blind, and the year of the Lord's favor would be proclaimed. And that he was the one in whom that fulfillment would come. And so they began to speak well of him. I don't know about you. My heart would go, okay, good, I'm good. I don't want to cause division or Problems or issues, but he knew they didn't truly grasp what he was saying. And so he continues, Surely you will quote the proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Hey, we saw you heal. We heard the news. And so obviously, you grew up here. So when you come back, you're going to do the same. Truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there were severe famines throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. 
And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was healed, only Naaman the Syrian. Commentator that I read this week by the name of Judith Jones, who's a vicar in the Episcopal Church, says this. Today, Jesus said, Isaiah's prophecy of release is fulfilled. This sounds like good news to his hearers in Nazareth, at least if all that healing and release is meant for them. But when Jesus reminds them that God's love extends beyond their borders, that Elijah helped a woman from Sidon and Elisha healed a hated Syrian, they concluded that his message is really bad news. In order to accept his teaching, they would have to change their attitudes towards outsiders. They would have to include people they routinely excluded. They would have to believe that God's salvation is really for all flesh and not just for them. End quote. And so as they think they hear him, they think the good news is for them and only for them. Jesus reminds them of two stories in the Hebrew Bible. The first one in 1 Kings 17, when Elijah goes and helps the widow of Zarephath. The story is she's making just enough food for her and her her sons, and then they're going to die. And Elijah comes and says, can I have some food? She's like, I don't have any. He's like, if you make a little bit for me, you will have enough. And they begin to pour oil into jars, and it just multiplies. And then she says, grab me another jar, and there's no more jars. And then he says, take all these jars and sell them. And the second is found in 2 Kings 5, where Elisha is telling Naaman, hey, you're full of leprosy. Go wash in the Jordan River seven times so that you could be cleansed of your leprosy. And eventually... Because at first he's like, I thought you were going to do something spectacular. Now you just tell me to go wash in this river. And so he eventually does, and he's healed and cleansed of his leprosy. It's, a, it's reinforcing what Jesus is coming for, what he's all about. That he came for the widow, the leper, the outsider, the least, the last, and the lost. That's what his heart beats for. Those that the establishment has marginalized and pushed aside. The outsiders, if you will, are special objects of God's mercy and grace, not objects of God's wrath and judgment. In fact, what we see in the rest of the whole book of Luke, I think Luke has a heart for the marginalized. Because what we see then is Jesus fulfilling everything he said he was about. We see instances of him proclaiming good news to the poor, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. We see it over and over and over again in the book of Luke. In fact, one of the first things we're going to do when we get to our discussion time is to go look at those, find those stories, both in Luke and other Gospels, where he fulfills what he says he came to do. Healing broken, welcoming even the most crushed and downtrodden people, tax collectors, prostitutes, beggars, hemorrhaging women, a woman, a homeless. And when he says 
that that's what he came for. The outsiders, not the insiders. That salvation has been open for everyone. Not just the good Jewish people gathered at the synagogue. They loved it. They thought it was the greatest thing ever. No, they didn't. Because they were the insiders. We have it. They don't. We're in. They're out. We're saved. They're not. We're good. They're evil. They're playing us versus them. The widow, the Syrian, they were outsiders. They were Gentiles. And it seems like we do the same thing. We created us versus them. We are wholly good. They are wholly evil. We have it figured out. They don't. It makes us feel superior, and we put them down. This means that we create a system based on exclusion, not inclusion. And we exclude anyone who doesn't fit into that system. Doesn't look like us. Doesn't think like us. Doesn't believe like us. Jesus has this audacity to believe that salvation is open to anyone and everyone. And not just religious insiders who put up gates and bars, lock the door, and won't let anyone in. Unless they begin to look like them, think like them, dress like them, act like them. And so Jesus puts his finger right on that. Like, he won't let them get away with that. It's open to all. The kingdom is open. The doors are open. He's showing this radical inclusion to the poor, those in prison, those who are blind, those who are oppressed. And instead of Isaiah, if you read the rest of Isaiah in 61, you say the Lord's vengeance, Lord's wrath. And here he changes it to say the year of the Lord's favor. Because I think those at the synagogue wanted him to continue reading down Isaiah 61. And he switches to Isaiah 56 and says, ah, it's about the Lord's favor to those on the margins. And he puts his finger on there and he doesn't just do it gently. He puts it, it's like putting a finger in a wound. And it irritates them. It bothers them. The ones who have power and control are shown their true colors, and they don't like it, and they get very angry. And so it says at the end of the story, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. And they grabbed him, and they rushed him out to the brow of a hill in order to push him off. And somehow he just weaves his way through the crowd and leaves, which I thought that was, I think that's amazing. I don't know how that happened. But that's amazing because they're so angry and they want to kill him because he says, no, the kingdom is for all, especially the broken, the hurting, the marginalized. I would say nothing makes religious people angrier than God's radical, inclusive grace. Nothing. They get ticked off because Jesus is being inclusive. 
A man by the name of Mike Iaconelli says this about grace and radical inclusive grace. Nothing in the church makes people in the church more angry than grace. It's ironic. We stumble into a party we weren't invited to and find the uninvited standing at the door, making sure no other uninvited get in. Then a strange phenomenon occurs. As soon as we are included in the party, because of Jesus' irresponsible love, we decide to make grace more responsible by becoming self-imported kingdom monitors, guarding the kingdom of God, keeping the riffraff out, which, as I understand it, are the ones who the kingdom of God is about to be is about the ones that we are to include. And so Jesus has a special place in his heart for the oppressed, the needy, the outsiders. He opens the kingdom to include everyone. He stands and says, "It's open. It's now your opportunity to step into it and then says you have that opportunity you can choose not to or you can choose to come but that's available to every single person even the good righteous self-righteous people the ones who consider themselves insiders the ones who consider themselves outsiders the kingdom is open for all And so the question becomes for us is this. What gospel are we proclaiming with our words and our lives? Are we proclaiming a gospel that is good news to the poor or to the ones who have it all? Good news for the captive or the captor? For the oppressed or the oppressor? Salvation is for all. Does the proclamation of this good news, this kingdom of God, envision that all actually can be saved? Now, I'm not saying that all will be saved. I'm saying all can be. And so our fourth vehicle is following Jesus into the margins. Jesus is already there. He wants us to walk with him and go there. Living in the midst of those who have been marginalized, whether from a world system or even worse, from a church who has marginalized them. Instead of following, we've, we've been excluded people instead of being radical, inclusive like Jesus is. To be vessels of that grace. And so in our time together, in our discussion, we're going to talk about where we see Jesus fulfilling those. Uh, call to the poor, the needy, the oppressed. We're going to look at how we've in. in Ah, sorry, how we've seen radical inclusive grace in our lives, how we've been vessels of that, how we have not been vessels of that, how we've been excluded, how we've excluded others. And lastly, what is Jesus saying to us about following him into the margins?